Thanks, Kirk. Good day, everyone. So, as uh, you've been told, uh, this is part two, really, of a two-part series, uh, looking at baptism last week and communion this week. Uh, these are things that we kind of do as traditions in our church, rituals, I, I guess, um, that are things that are given to us by Jesus. So he's commanded us to do these things uh, and we experience his grace to us uh, as we practice them. Uh, food is a very important part of life, uh, obviously, because we can't survive without food. But food is very important in terms of the rituals and the practices that we have uh, in different societies as well. Uh, so in some ways, as Australians, uh, we've got a bit less of sort of a national culture around food than other countries do. So as Aussies, we've got less of a food culture. We kind of get a bit jealous of other cultures which have sort of national dishes and traditions around food more than we do. I mean, sure, we've got, you know, the meat pie and the pavlova, um, but it doesn't, it's not kind of the same as what lots of other cultures have. Although even then, you're going to have traditions, right? So when you go to the footy, it could be very much a tradition and a ritual for you that at halftime you pay 10 bucks for that pie, but it's part of being at the footy that you have to have a pie. And food is really important in terms of marking significant occasions, celebrations and events. Now, an obvious example is Christmas dinner. Okay? Uh, each family has their traditions around what you do at Christmas time. It might be the seafood banquet that your family does, or it might be you know, the turkey, the ham, followed by the Christmas pudding that is really important for you as part of celebrating Christmas. Uh, and these sorts of things are very important and they run very much to the core of who we are uh, as people and how we mark these celebrations. So when I'm preparing couples for marriage, I always ask the question, how do you do rituals in your family? Right? Describe for me how you mark significant occasions in your family life. Because people will talk about the way that you know, Christmas is done or the way that birthdays are done, uh, and it's really important to them, really runs deep within them. Uh, and often they just assume that that's the way everyone does it. And then you ask the other person, and they've done it entirely differently. Okay? And so when you come together with your different rituals and different traditions, and both of you assuming this is the way it's got to be done and you get married, boom, it all blows up because of the different expectations. This is still an issue in my relationship with Anna, okay, around Christmas. My family always did the traditional Christmas dinner, turkey, ham, Christmas pudding. And for me, if I don't eat turkey, if I don't eat ham, if I don't eat Christmas pudding on Christmas Day, it doesn't feel like Christmas has happened, Right? It's really important for me feeling like it's Christmas because that's the way we always did things. For Anna's family, they love to be creative. Christmas is an opportunity to entertain, to try new things, to pull out the latest Marie Claire magazine. Is that a food magazine? I don't even know. Um, choose what's there and you know, cook it up. Um, I mean, why be boring and restrictive and have the same thing year in, year out? That's their attitude. So Tim and Anna come together in marriage. Boom! Um, well, it didn't blow up, but it is still an issue, let me tell you. We're aware of it. We can manage it. We have plans for managing it, but it's one of those things that will never go away. Of course, food rituals run very deep, right? 
They run deep within us. Well, today we're talking about a food ritual, uh, a meal that we gather for together. We call it the Lord's Supper uh, or Holy Communion or Eucharist. It's different names for the same thing, right? Um, And it's a meal. There's bread involved, there's wine or grape juice involved, and it's a ritual which is really important and it runs deep in people's Christian experience. Um, And when people go to a different church and things are done differently, sometimes it can feel a bit weird, like you haven't actually done it properly because it's been done differently. And let me tell you, in the history of the church, there has been plenty of kaboom around the meaning of this meal and how it's to be done. Uh, As with baptism last week, my aim in speaking about this is to be gracious. I want to speak graciously. That's what I'm going to try and do. I want you to listen graciously to what I've had to say. If there's time for questions in the service, ask away. If there isn't, ask me afterwards. I'd love to chat more about it. And I want us to remember, again, that these things, these sacraments as we call them, are all about Jesus, right? Focus your mind on Jesus. That's the central thing about it. They're commanded by Jesus. So when it comes to Holy Communion, twice in the Bible reading that we just had, we heard the words, do this in remembrance of me. Jesus says, do it. I want you to do it. I want you to keep doing it. It's a command of Jesus that we celebrate this meal. Do this in remembrance of me, he says. So it's commanded by Jesus But the intention of communion is to focus our minds on Jesus, who he is and what he came to do. Communion is all about the death and the resurrection of Jesus, which are the key parts to what Jesus came to do. They're key parts of the good news or the gospel of Jesus, what he's done for us. Now, I said last week that in the Anglican Church, we describe sacraments with this definition, that they are an outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual grace. So breaking that down, there are things that you can see. There are outward and visible things. There is bread and there is wine. Right? That's what that's talking about. But as we take those uh, things, the bread and the wine, God works in us by his Holy Spirit to give us his grace, to do a good work in us. That's what the inward and spiritual grace is talking about. And I want us to think as we go through today is what is it that God does in us? What is it that we're doing as we celebrate communion together? Uh, Last week we looked at Acts chapter 2, Peter standing up, telling people the good news of Jesus, and at the end when he finished he called on people to be baptised, to turn to Jesus and to be baptised as a way of Um, giving their life to Jesus and starting that journey of faith with Jesus. And the last verse we read was, those who accepted his message were baptised and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. The very next verse, Acts 2.42, says this, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Breaking of bread is a reference to Holy Communion, this meal of celebration. And it probably was in the context of a meal together that they would have celebrated. So you see, right from the very first day that God pours out his spirit and the church begins, really, 
there's baptism, and then they commit themselves to meeting with each other, including breaking bread together in Holy Communion. So, baptism is the sacrament of entry into Jesus, starting the Christian life, and communion is the sacrament of continuing life in Jesus, remembering him and being nourished by him. Now, if you want to go looking for information about communion in the Bible, there's a number of places you can look. In three of the Gospels, which are like the biographies of Jesus' life, Matthew, Mark and Luke, you read about Jesus instituting, starting this meal when he met with his disciples. John's Gospel doesn't reference that, but in our I Am series, which we did a few weeks back, we saw Jesus speaking about himself as the bread of life. And that's quite an important passage. We'll reference that tonight in thinking a little bit about communion. But the other place for information about communion and what it means is in 1 Corinthians, which we've had read tonight. Two chapters, chapter 10 and chapter 11. I'm going to focus on chapter 11, but I'm going to bounce back at one point into chapter 10. So if you've got your Bibles, I'd love you to have them open, uh, page 930, uh, as we go through and look at this together. Uh, As you're grabbing your Bibles, if you haven't got it already, let me give you the context for what is going on here. Uh, Paul's writing to a group of Christians in the city of Corinth, and this part of his letter, he's basically laying out to them some problems that are going on in their church, and he's trying to help them fix them up. Um, They've got a lot of problems, as you'll see, Uh, but one of the problems is that they muck up how they do communion pretty badly. So what's going on in their church is you've got rich members of the church who are starting having communion early. Right? They get to the person's house, uh, they have this lavish feast, they're eating great food, they're getting drunk on the wine um, rather than waiting for everyone else to come. And then later on, the poorer members of the church who would have been slaves and workers in people's household, labourers who had to finish the day's work before they could come, they get there The other members of the church are are drunk and all the good food's gone uh, and basically they just get the dregs and they're made to feel like second-class citizens. Um, It's a bit like, you know, if we decided to sort of go, okay, we're going to just put your hand up in terms of what your income is here Uh, and if it's over a certain point, hey, come up the front because we've got a great Barossa Shiraz uh, and some some beautifully, I've just baked today, some lovely herb focaccia, um, and we'll have that. Um, If you're under a certain point in terms of what you're earning, do you mind just going outside into the dark? We've got some watered-down grape juice, a bit of stale bread. You can have that, okay? There's this massive division going on between the poor and the rich in the church, and Paul says to them, This is not what communion is about. You're undermining the very message of Jesus that we're all in this together, that Jesus died to forgive us and to make us into one people together. Uh, And you're you're just mucking it up in terms... This is not what communion is about. Um, Jesus died for rich and poor, young and old, men and women. We're all in this together. You're undermining the very point of the Lord's Supper. So he lays out for them, here's what it is about, um, which is the bit where we started reading, where he's trying to get them back to the basics, to say, here is what Jesus did, and he's passed it on to us, so this is what we should be doing as well. And he highlights three things that we're doing as we celebrate communion. 
First thing that we're doing is we're remembering. Okay, you can see that if you have a look in your Bibles at verses 24 and 25. So Jesus broke bread and he says, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He takes a cup and he says, this is the new covenant, the new agreement, the new promises that are being made in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. So communion at its heart is about remembering what Jesus has done for us. Looking back to the past, to what Jesus did in his life and death. When Jesus started this meal with his first followers, they were gathered to celebrate what was called the Passover meal. It was an annual Jewish celebration, which was all about remembering. They were remembering the fact that as a nation, they'd been slaves in Egypt and God had rescued them and set them free. Uh, And it was a really important meal. It was a precious ritual meal for the Jews to remember the way that God had saved them in the past, rescued them from slavery. And Jesus, in the middle of this meal, says, do you know what? I'm going to change the meaning of this meal. When you have this again, this is not going to be about remembering how God rescued Israel from being slaves. This is about me and what I have done for you. I want you now to remember that I am rescuing you from slavery to sin and to death. So as Jesus died on the cross, as his body was broken, as his blood was shed, in doing that he was taking our sin upon himself, he was being punished in our place so that we could be completely forgiven, have a right relationship with God. And as we eat the bread and drink from the cup, we're remembering that Jesus did that for us. We're remembering that we are rescued by Jesus because of his death on the cross dying in our place. So communion is all about remembering, looking back that this happened, this was a finished thing that Jesus did. By dying on the cross, we're offered forgiveness, we're rescued from sin and from death. We remember. But secondly, we're also proclaiming something as we celebrate communion. So verse 26 says, For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now, if you proclaim something, that's about announcing or telling people something, usually something good. You want to you know, proclaim it to other people. So when we gather to celebrate communion, we're really making an announcement together. We're making an announcement that Jesus has won us forgiveness. He's rescued us. He's done this for us. So when we have communion, there are words spoken from the front, uh, but sometimes we say words back to each other. We speak words which tell us about the truth of what we're doing together. But it's more than that. It's actually a proclamation that we make with our bodies. As we come forward to receive bread and wine, as we open our empty hands to receive from Jesus what he has done for us in his death, by his body and his blood, We're making an announcement, a proclamation that we believe that this is true and that this is really important to who we are as people. Uh, Now, sometimes in art, they talk about performance pieces, performance art, you know, where actors are involved or uh, maybe it's just that, you know, the general public get involved in the artwork and they act in it as a performance piece. 
Well, it's a bit like that. We are all actors in this drama where we are proclaiming that Jesus died for our sins, that he came back to life, that we are forgiven through Jesus. No one is just a passive recipient in communion. It's something that we all do as we actively proclaim together in celebrating it. Okay? It's kind of nice to sort of think that you're an actor in this drama and that you are saying something and proclaiming something about what Jesus has done for you as you play your part in communion. Now, if you want to stretch the metaphor, you can say, well, how long does this performance last? Right? I don't mean how long's the service going to go for um, tonight. I mean, kind of how long's the show going to run for? How long's the season for this show? How long do we keep... Uh, enacting this drama where we proclaim the death of Jesus together. And the answer comes at the end of verse 26, where Paul says, until he comes, until Jesus comes. There's a sense in communion that we're looking back to the past, to what Jesus did when he died on the cross. But there's another sense in which we're looking forward to the future as well. We're looking to the return of Jesus because when Jesus comes back and he brings in the new creation, when he restores the world so it's back to the way that it should be, we won't need to celebrate communion like we do now because we'll be part of a great heavenly party, a heavenly banquet, and we'll be in the very presence of Jesus. One of the images in the Bible about what the future looks like when Jesus comes back is a massive banquet with great food and a party and everyone gathered together centred around Jesus himself. So we remember, we proclaim, but we also participate. Communion is about participating. Now, where am I getting that word from? I'm getting that word from 1 Corinthians 10. You might need to flick back in your Bibles one page. Remember I said that the church at Corinth had heaps of problems So it wasn't just that they were mucking up communion, but there were other things going on as well. And in chapter 10, Paul has to tackle another problem in their church, namely that people from their church are going and celebrating uh, feasts where the food has been offered to idols and they're participating in these parties, these feasts, and and eating that food that's been offered uh, to idols. Uh, And Paul in this chapter wants to say, this is dumb, it's foolish, And it's a bit dangerous too. Well, actually, it's very dangerous. Uh, And he compares what they're doing as they go and have these feasts to what's happening in communion. So in chapter 10, uh, verses 16 and 17, which incidentally is on the same page that we're on, he says this, Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation... In the body of Christ. Now, this is a bit tricky here. That word participation can be translated in different ways. It can mean you can translate it participation, you can translate it sharing, or you can translate it communion. This is where we get the word communion to label this meal. There's a sense in which um, there's a spiritual reality going on here, Paul says, that as we eat the bread and drink the wine, We're connecting in a way with Jesus, with Jesus' body and blood. We're communing with him, we're sharing with him, we're participating with him in this act. And he goes on to point out 
It's totally inconsistent for you to go to these pagan feasts and eat that food that's been offered to idols because by doing that, the, the idols are nothing, right? They're, they're nothing. But behind those idols, Paul says, there's actually evil forces. There's demons lying behind that false worship. And he says you're participating with demons when you do that. And it doesn't make sense to participate with Christ in communion and participate with demons. You can't do both, he says. So in running this argument, okay, he's pointing to something deeper that's going on in this meal. It's not just remembering something that happened in the past. It's not just proclaiming some truths. There's a sort of spiritual connection with Jesus that is happening here. So here's the question then. In what sense do we participate with Jesus as we come for this meal? Now, if these pews had seatbelts, I would be saying this is the point you need to strap yourself in to the pew because you might get a sense here, this is the hot question, right? This is the hot question that has led to kaboom uh, in church history and between different parts of the church. Let me give you an example of a a story. A friend of mine, Carolyn, who's uh, an Anglican minister, um, was serving communion and she had the cup And uh, there was a lady there coming up. She handed her the cup and there was that awkward moment where the lady coming thought that Carolyn was going to just pour the wine into her mouth. Carolyn thought the lady was going to take the cup out of her hands. Total mix-up. All the wine got spilt over this lady. And she freaked out. She freaked out because she thought she was covered in the blood of Jesus when the wine went over her, okay? Because her church tradition and background had taught, uh, as a number of churches do, that the bread is changed into the body of Christ and the wine is changed into the blood of Christ as communion is celebrated. It still looks like bread, it still tastes like bread and wine, but it is actually changed, that is the teaching. And some churches would hold to this view. The Anglican Church would say, "Uh uh-uh, we absolutely reject that view. In the articles of the Anglican Church, it says, no, that goes against what the Bible teaches. Um, It goes against the nature of what a sacrament is. Uh, And it actually leads to lots of superstitions, and it has done through history. Um, So the Anglican position is, the bread remains bread. The bread is bread, and the wine remains wine. So that's not the sense in which you're participating. You're not actually sort of eating Jesus in a physical sense. But there's still a sense in which you do feed on Christ. Now, you might remember in that I Am series where we looked at the words of Jesus in John 6, Jesus describes himself as the bread of life. Uh, You can go and listen to the podcast. Uh, It's on our website if you'd like to listen to it. But Jesus says these challenging words in verses 53 to 56 there. He says, Very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man, and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I'll raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in them. Does that make you feel uncomfortable? makes me feel uncomfortable to read that, right? It is confronting and challenging language. 
And when Jesus spoke those words, it was confronting and challenging to his listeners. People walked away. They said, stuff this. (laughs) I'm not following Jesus anymore. This is too weird. This is too strange. And they walked away. And it's still confronting and challenging language. And there's a prayer um, in the Anglican prayer book that we sometimes pray. We don't do it often um, at Sunday at 6. But we pray these words. Grant us, therefore, gracious Lord, so to eat the flesh of your dear son, Jesus Christ, and to drink his blood, that we may evermore dwell in him and he in us. Amen. These might be the words that you were referring to, Ian, when you were saying there is this weird language that we speak about in terms of eating flesh and drinking blood. This is, these are the words that people most complain to me about and say, why do we say that? I don't get why we say that. It sounds like we're cannibals or some weird cult that we say these words, right? In fact, Christians have been accused of being cannibals over the years because we sometimes use this sort of language and people think we're, we're really eating flesh and blood as we gather together. That's what's going on behind closed doors. But actually, that prayer is pretty much word for word a paraphrase of what Jesus says about eating his flesh and drinking his bread, which is why we, why we pray it. So what are we talking about? The bread's still bread, the wine is still wine, and yet we kind of talk about eating Jesus' flesh and blood that we might remain in him. So the Anglican Church's answer is this, that when we come to receive bread and wine and we come expressing our trust in Jesus, that we have faith in him, we believe in him, we rely on him, that the Holy Spirit works in us in that moment and in that act, that we are fed on Jesus in a spiritual sense. We're nourished by him spiritually as we come. It's hard to put it better than this. This is another phrase from the Anglican Prayer Book. It's sometimes said as an invitation when people come to the Lord's table. It says, Come, let us take this holy sacrament of the body and blood of Christ in remembrance that he died for us and feed on him in our hearts by faith with thanksgiving. So we are feeding on Christ, but not with our mouths. We're feeding in our hearts. And how are we doing it? We're doing it by faith. Okay. So we're expressing our trust in Jesus as we come in the act of eating bread and wine. It is still bread and wine, but we're nourished spiritually as the Holy Spirit works in us that we might be fed and nourished by Jesus. It's powerful and it's real in the same way that our physical bodies are nourished by food. We need food to survive, to grow, to have energy. So in this meal, Jesus wants to nourish us spiritually, to strengthen us, to empower us for our life with him. So as we come and receive bread and wine, the outward and visible signs, and we come in faith, we're spiritually nourished, refreshed, and strengthened by Jesus, which is the inward and spiritual grace. That is what God does in us as we come and take these things. So we come to remember what Jesus has done. We come to proclaim the death of Jesus and what it means. And we come to participate, to be fed in a spiritual sense with the body and blood of Jesus. So there's one more question uh, that I want to tackle, and that is, who can come? Who can come to communion? We saw last week that uh, what is needed for baptism is repentance, turning away from sin, from the wrong that we've done, 
and faith, turning to Jesus and saying, yeah, Jesus, I want to trust in you, I want to rely on you. Um, They're required for baptism, which is the entry sacrament, really, for Christian faith. But those two things are exactly what's required for communion as well. Repentance, turning away from sin, which is why we often have a prayer of confession as we come to prepare ourselves from communion. We want to say we're turning away from the things we've done wrong. And faith, turning towards Jesus and putting our trust in him. Okay, then you say, what about all these warnings at the end of the passage that we have here about, it says there, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. That sounds like serious stuff. And what follows is actually some pretty serious implications. I'm a bit worried about coming in an unworthy manner. Maybe my life's not together enough. Maybe I shouldn't come and take the bread and wine. It sounds pretty risky. What does it mean when he says, don't do it in an unworthy manner? Again, context. Remember what's going on. The rich are abusing and... um, actively despising the poor in the congregation. There's massive conflict and disagreement, separation and abuse that's happening in the church. Uh, And there's a lack of repentance. People aren't wanting to change their behaviour about this, which is why Paul warns them there. And he warns them, don't eat the bread and drink the cup without, he says, discerning the body. Don't do it without discerning the body, which is not about looking for Jesus in the bread, That reference to the body of Christ often refers to the church. Don't come without thinking about other members of the church and how you're treating them. Okay, That's the context for what's going on here, that there's abuse happening. And he says, no, you need to discern the body. You need to look at each other and how you're treating each other. And only then eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Examine yourself. This is about you and looking at your heart and where you're at before you come. Reflect, and if you see wrong things there, bring them to God. Say sorry to God, ask for his forgiveness, and then come and receive the bread and the wine. Uh, Sometimes people sit out at communion because they think, well, yeah, I trust in Jesus, but I've had a bad week and I've done lots of stuff wrong. I shouldn't come. I'm not worthy to come and have bread and wine. And my answer to that is, none of us are worthy. The whole point of communion is that Jesus died on the cross to deal with our sins. None of us can come in terms of the good stuff we've done. The whole point is we come with open hands, empty hands, with nothing to offer God, and we say, please, I need to receive from you. I need Jesus. I need his death on the cross to deal with my sin. I need to be fed by him so that I can have strength to go through this next week. Come. You're welcome to come. If you love Jesus, if you trust in Jesus, if you want to turn away from the things that are taking you away from God, come. That's what it's all about, that Jesus has done it for us. His death deals with our sins. None of us are worthy. We need Jesus for his forgiveness and the life that he offers. There's another question that comes up about who can come, and that is, well, what about children? Can children come and have communion? Uh, It's pretty universally agreed in different denominations that baptism comes before communion. So I've been talking about baptism as the sacrament of entry. It's where you start the Christian life. And then communion is about the ongoing Christian life. 
So in churches where they baptise adults only, not children, or maybe older children, then it's often after baptism happens as an adult or as an older child that people then come and start taking communion. For Anglicans who do baptise children for the reasons that I spelled out last week, the traditional position was that you didn't take communion until you were confirmed. And for some people here, that's what you're waiting for, until you're confirmed to have communion. Uh, That was what happened for me. I didn't take communion until I was 14, 15. I'd been confirmed, stood up, said, yep, those promises that were made in baptism, I believe those, and then I was allowed to come to communion. There's something inconsistent in that traditional Anglican position because by baptising infants, the Anglican Church is saying these children who have been brought by their parents and godparents who are making these promises on their behalf are part of the church. They are in. They are one of us. God's promises apply to them. They're not potential Christians. They're not probationary Christians. They're Christians as much as an adult believer is. And yet, traditionally, we've said, but you can't share in the family meal that we have together. You're not welcome. Or you're welcome to come, but we're not going to give you any bread or wine. Now, recognising that inconsistency, the Anglican Church has actually changed its position in recent years. So this new rule's been made where if a child's been baptised, they can take communion before they're confirmed. If they understand what communion's about if they're turning away from sin, if they're repenting and exercising faith, as is appropriate for them, then they're welcome to come. And given communion was a replacement for the Passover meal, um, the people of Israel basically had the whole family there. That was part of the liturgy was that a young child would ask the father, how come we're eating this flat bread? Well, let me explain that to you. Oh, and how come we're having these bitter herbs? Well, let me explain to you what's going on. The whole point was that everyone was learning how God had rescued them in an experiential way. And communion is a great opportunity to do that. That As children have this bread and drink this wine, they're being reminded that you know, Jesus loves you. Jesus died for you. Jesus forgives you. It's a great way for learning. Um, I've run a little seminar for families on what communion's all about, and if people would like to do that. I've done that with some of the families here at Sunday at 6, but that's something you could do. Of course, a child's not going to have the same understanding as an adult, but all of us are on a journey. None of us understands things fully, and we all need to grow in our faith and in our understanding. As young and old, as a family and a community, we share together. What we need to know is this. Jesus loves you so much that he died for you. Remember his body and blood. Just as food nourishes your physical body, Jesus nourishes us spiritually. You need to know that you are part of a family. It's called the church. And as we eat this meal together, we're expressing that we are a family, we belong together, we're one body united around Jesus and in Jesus. And as we come forward to eat the bread and drink the wine, we're making a proclamation. We're shouting out to anyone who will listen that Jesus has died for us. It's all been done for us. All we do is come with empty hands to receive a gift that has been given to us. And we keep on doing it, and we keep on doing it, and we keep on doing it until Jesus comes back. Because then 
will be part of a much better meal, a greater meal, a great banquet in heaven where Jesus himself will be the host. Let me pray. God, there's lots of complicated stuff when it comes to thinking about communion, so we ask that you would just help us to fix our eyes on what it's all about at its heart. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he died for us so that our sins would be forgiven, that he rescued us from sin and death. Help us to remember him, help us to tell others about him, and help us to feed on him. Amen.